I'm very joyful that after in September I've been here, I'm here again and can bring the word and I greet you with the greetings of Paul in his letters. Grace be with you and peace from the Lord God our Father. We listen to the living word of God in Acts chapter 4, the verses 1 to 22. Me. And as they, that was Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the, ca the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Cephas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were, who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power of by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to this crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may, may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man who whom the sign was of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the year one, uh, 1840, the Prussian king, Friedrich Wilhelm IV, um, asked for the renewal or the renovation of his, of his chateau, of his castle, or his house. And the house was a couple of hundred years old, and he wanted an, an update, basically. And he was a very devout Christian, so he had a chapel 
built in in the in this house and on the on the ceiling or around the ceiling in this chapel he visible for all people who came in he he made an inscription and the first half of this inscription is there is in no one else there's there is salvation and nor is there any other name given to me by in the name but in the name of Jesus to the glory of God the Father and this is not a sentence he imagined himself or thought about it's out of the bible and maybe you realize it's in our sermon verse today in our scripture and at the time no one was really annoyed about that some people at the time thought well maybe he's a bit pious but in general people were used to the fact that christian belief was just there in in the open public but after the first world war the prussian kings were were deposed and in the second world war the the house was bombed that palace was bombed and then the ddr the the, the socialist government afterwards bombed uh, basically destroyed the building and an initiative asked for this building this palace to be rebuilt and the new building is actually quite close to, to the way it looked it used to look it did get a new kind of a ceiling for this chapel and this bible verse is really back in the inscription in this in the ceiling and a couple of years ago i was there and i saw this inscription and i thought well interesting that in such a godless city as berlin such a bible verse is is promoted in in public i mean in a building that's not even a church outside of jesus there is no possibility to be saved that's what's written there and yeah literally it was pretty quick that there was discussions about that this is downgrading other religions it's so intolerant this is imperialism and and colonialism and long story short in in 21st century we all know if there is a god i mean there is many ways there have to be many ways to god anything else is intolerant this inscription after this discussion was actually allowed to stay there but there is of course a a little plate a description underneath that explains it now and puts it into perspective why do i tell all of this i tell this because jesus's expectation to be the king is always an, an agitation a, a a stone of stumbling some love him and some stumble about him and to understand that we have to go to the very beginning of the bible since the fall since the sin came into this world the devil is the ruler of this world in in the sin that he has to keep in his rebellion against God, he rules this world. But God hasn't left this world to itself. He hasn't, uh, he hasn't, yeah, lost them. But he, he had a plan, a rescue plan. God had a plan to give this world a counter king. And between this devil and this other king I install, there will be war, but my king will be winning. My king will win. And this king is no one else than Jesus Christ, son of God. And since then, there is two kingdoms in this world. The, 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 the principality, the, the prince of this earth, 
uh, is against God. But there's also God's kingdom. There's God's people under God's rule. We as God's children. And God says more. He doesn't, even, doesn't only say that these two kingdoms are an enmity to each other, but not only these two enemies are an enmity to each other, Jesus and Satan, but also the kingdoms are an enmity. So Abram, for example, fighting, is fighting against the kings that have robbed Lot, his, his nephew, and others. Later, God is fighting against the Egyptians. And, and even later, Israelites are fighting against the Canaanites and all the other people. And after a couple of more hundred years, God put his king and installed him. His son became human. And the devil tried to, to hinder him. But since the death and resurrection of Jesus, this war is won. Christ, the king of God, has won and the devil has lost. But, there's a big but. Since Jesus, till Jesus comes back a second time, there is fight still happening. There's skirmishes, there's uh, battles. But the war is won, the victory is won. But there's still battles going on. And as Christians, we stand in these, in these fights, in these battles. Um, we're not fighting with flesh and blood, like in the Old Testament, with like David, uh, yeah, throwing the stone against Goliath. We're not using weapons against flesh and blood, but we still fight. There's even a, an armor in our battle, in our fight. The, the spiritual armor that we find in Paul's letter. There's something that we should never forget. You should never forget. You are in a fight. Do you know what the first, the first step the devil takes to try to win this fight? The first step of the devil is he tries to make you forget that you're in a fight. People are never more helpless and without protection when they don't know they are in a fight. So when they don't know there is danger. And especially Christians in the West, we often do forget that there is this fight. Because we often don't feel this fight. And it's very, very dangerous if you forget that. Because from 0 to 180 kilometers an hour, like in, in no time, God can put you on the battlefront. And that the, the devil attacks you. And you're more prepared for the situation. And to prepare for this fight, for these fights, there is a lot of stories in the Bible as well how people of God and men of God have fought this fight. And one of this story we read today, we read today. There's Peter and John, the apostles, on the side of the kingdom of God. And on the other side, there is the Jewish leaders. That's the kingdom of the rulers, the ruler, the principality of this world. And my prayer is that today, in this sermon, for your, for your fight, you will learn something from this fight 2,000 years ago. My topic today is the fight between the kingdoms. We, we, don't want, we want to see three things for this fight. The fight is often ignited by the spirit of the age. Secondly, the fight is decided by Jesus. And the third point, the fight is, is exposing your faith. 
So firstly, it's often ignited by the spirit of the age. It is described by Jesus. It is decided by Jesus, second point, and it's exposing your faith, third one. So not everything about King Jesus is provoking. If you say Jesus is love, everyone agrees. If you go to the pedestrian crossing and you ask people, no one would argue with you. Or you say Christian values are very good and important. That hardly hardly ever annoys anyone. But there's other things said about Jesus that do provoke a lot more. So the interesting thing is, what are the things that provoke about Jesus? It does change over time. Jesus always does provoke. But depending on this, on the time, it's different things of Jesus, of him, that provoke. For example, this verse on the ceiling of this palace in the 19th century Hardly anyone shrugs. But today, people get mad about it. So people get mad about different things in Jesus. And, and often it's the thing where Jesus as a person or a teacher is in contrast to the spirit of the age. And because the spirit of the age is always against Jesus, but is always changing, it's also different things in Jesus that do provoke so that's my first point. The struggle between the kingdoms is often ignited by the spirit of the age. So now, after some time, we do jump into the story. It's not very far away uh, that actually there was Pentecost, the real Pentecost. And 3,000 people were converted. And these first Christians had such a living, wonderful faith that was so winning and, and, and nice for other people that they didn't, didn't um, had any opposition. But the leaders did have a lot of opposition. The, the leaders of this faith and the Jewish leaders were furious. And they thought maybe this whole movement's going to die down, but nothing of it. It wouldn't die down. And here we see that there's a man who can't walk. We know from the very end of our verses that he was 40 years. He's very, he couldn't walk for ages, and now he could walk after Peter healed him. And after this, Peter uh, hold a, holds a sermon, and 2,000 additional people come to faith. So that's verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So for these Jewish leaders, uh, it became clear that this is... Not just a little hype. This is serious. So they start thinking, we need to do something. We need to act. In verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and the pro proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So the plan was kind of we, we, we take them away from the temple so they can't preach and then we sleep at night and then tomorrow we'll see what we do with them. So they took them in the prison. So now let's put ourselves for a moment into an observer of this whole thing. For example, a Roman soldier. For example, the prison guard at the time. He, he sees all this happening. What does he think? He probably thinks something like, oh, these Jews, man, how aggressive. 
again they have this theological debate i mean they've had they had this a few weeks ago with jesus and now there's another ex escalation of this theological debate maybe that was how a neutral observer saw this but this is far too short because if we if we look behind the stage this is not an interreligious kind of fight jews that like jesus and jews that don't like jesus no we see here how these two big kingdoms of this world fight and come together and i mean in this big climax we see how these john and peter go into prison and peter and john probably think what do they do with us tomorrow so escalation escalation jerusalem so what actually agitated and made them angry so much these jewish leaders about the sermon so the leaders the jewish leaders around this time um, most people most christians at the today think of the pharisees these were the, the pharisees the group that jesus often fought with them and and talked and discussed with them but we have to know that the pharisees were a small a minority amongst the spiritual leaders of the time jesus um condemned them for their for their focus on the law and, and their works righteousness but the pharisees took god very serious they they really wanted to be good enough for god i mean they had done a lot of wrong things but that to to be to be right with god is a good motivation so um the other group the more majority group of this leadership was the sadducees and most of the jews belong to this party the the majority of the of the of the um scribes and also the high priest was usually sadducee so the pharisees were more the conservative and and the sadducees were kind of a lot more liberal or they were more wealthy and the the wealthy uh, spirit of the day at the time was more the the greek greek philosophy and thinking and one of the most important things in this greek philosophy and so on was there is no resurrection in the greek philosopher there's it's not so easy to understand but important is the resurrection would be well especially as a resurrection with a body is ridiculous it doesn't it doesn't work the sadducees uh, did not believe in that so officially there were jews the sadducees did did claim god but they didn't really believe god they believed more in the spiritual in the in the in the spirit of the age so they kind of they stood on the other kingdom side they were mad about the fact that the pharisees proclaimed jesus and in him the resurrection of the dead so when the pharisees were agitated about jesus it was usually about jesus claiming he was the son of god that was provoking to them but for the sadducees the thing with the resurrection was more kind of the the, the problem there's another one of these passages where jesus does fight with the sadducees about this question resurrection and in this in this uh passage it's not even jesus's resurrection 
but um, it's the resurrection in Jesus here in verse 2. So the Sadducees were agitated about that, that the apostles said, because Jesus resurrected from the dead, you can also be resurrected from the dead if you believe. And this went against anything that the Sadducees believed. It was against anything they were convinced of. It was a, 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 a direct attack on their kingdom. And the Christians, how do they react on this? Well, first Peter and John went into prison. And then the first morning in verse 5, they have to answer. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Cephas, and John and Alexander, the other Sadducees. <laughs> and, and verse 7, And by what power or by what name did you do this? King Jesus is provoking. Jesus stays the same, but the spirit of the age is changing. At the time, the resurrection was provoking. Today, it's other things. Questions about identity, sexuality, for example, today, for example, today, or or the singular only way. No one comes to the Father than to me. There's no other name given for salvation. That was on the on the ceiling, right? It doesn't even have to be the major things of our faith, but it is the things that the spirit of the age comes against. So Christians have said something to me like, why do you biblical Christians kind of talk so much about sexual identity? Or something like, yeah, you can get agitated about this, but it's not such a central topic. I mean, can you as Christians, can we as Christians just not dis agree to disagree? I mean, it's about Jesus, right? Not about all these details. But that doesn't work. Often these details, these things on the outskirt, on the, they, these detail questions become the central focus when the spirit of the age hits Jesus. We could also say the point where these two kingdoms smash together. And that's the, why the questions in the different centuries and the different cultures and different countries are different. But the, the core, the core is always the same. If you belong to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you are in a fight. You're in a struggle. You're not always in the battlefront, in the front line. But it can happen, like John and Peter, that in one moment, you are suddenly at the front line. And for that, you should be prepared. The good news is, you are in a struggle, in a fight. But you're not only on the right side, but you also are on the winning team. Like I said at the beginning, King Jesus has, through his death and resurrection, won this battle, this war. And this cause also is visible in, in what we see in the, in the talk late, in that follows now between Peter John and the, higher, and the other Jews now. That's my second point. The struggle between the kingdoms is decided by Jesus. Second point. John and Peter are at this front line now. But 
they tell of the the war that's already won. I mean, no handbrake here. Uh, no, no keeping back. Jesus, uh, Peter just talks about Jesus' resurrection. If we read chapter 3, that we... We read that this lame person who got healed is jumping through the through the whole temple. And we read in chapter 4, in verse 14, that he was very close and proximity. He, he's standing close to them. And this is very interesting. He's probably so thankful for what he experienced that he he goes with Peter and John on the front line, kind of. So, if you stood with Peter and John on this day, you were not in the winning team, obviously. But Peter can point to this man now and say, This man, this man was healed by Jesus. And you, Jews, you killed Jesus, but he was resurrected. And this resurrection power has healed and resurrected these legs of this man. You have rejected Jesus as this stone you couldn't use, but God has used this Jesus Jesus as a cornerstone, this important foundation for everything. Because Jesus resurrected, because Jesus is the cornerstone, there is no other way to be saved. No other way than Jesus to be resurrected from, deed, from the dead. Verse 12, there is... Salvation and no other, another, no other else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the verse from the roof, the ceiling of the palace. Especially this resurrection comes even more into view if we see it in light of this struggle, this battle. Jesus is in this on this cross, he's hanging there and he's almost dead. And for everyone observing it, they think, well, this battle is lost. But then Jesus at the very end says, it is complete. He says this, and three days later, he's resurrected. He's living. For a couple of hours, it looked like the devil is winning this battle. But especially in this hour, where the devil looked as he was winning, he actually lost. Not only the battle, not only the fight, but the whole war. The whole king, the one king that seemingly had victory over that other king was actually defeated by him. This is the miracle at Golgotha. That's why in Jesus and only in Jesus there is salvation. This is the message from Peter. And Peter is in this message very clear and short, but very, very direct. Firstly, he acknowledges this resurrection and the power of this resurrection for everyone who believes. And he says that in front of the Sadducees who are, who are denying resurrection against the spirit of the age. And he says to the, the, the leaders of the Jews, you have killed him. Peter has already said that in the sermon at Pentecost and at the sermon in the temple, chapter 3, and now he does it again. And this time, he even quotes Psalm 118. You have thrown Jesus away like a, 
a worthless stone, but God has taken the stone and made it the cornerstone. The question is now, for everyone who was there in this inquiry session, how would these leaders and Sadducees react? What would they do? And I think they reacted reasonably calm. I mean, there's people in, in world history that were killed for less than that. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Why are they so relaxed? Their, in brackets, only um, excuse me, they're only they're, they're wondering. They're in verse 14, they say, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they sent Peter and John out, and then they talk amongst themselves. It's in one way, funny, funny counsel they're holding together. They know that Peter and John are right. Not with everything maybe they think, but they know exactly with the major thing with this man healing, they're right. They also know that John and Peter are favorable favored in, in the people and that they healed this lame person. But even though they they know that that's right, but they but they don't they don't admit it. They say, yeah, actually they're they're right, Peter and John, but it, it, it may not be. It's it's not okay. It doesn't doesn't work. We will threaten them not to talk about Jesus. That's a wishy-washy, it's a really bad plan when you have, basically only when you have no argument on your side. And you see that the plan isn't working out at all. I mean, verse 19, Peter and, and, Paul, uh, Peter and John says, you decide yourself if it is more right to listen to you or to God, because it is impossible to not read from what we've seen and heard. So, in other words, the threats of the high priests hit nothing. They don't achieve anything. Peter and John can't do anything. I mean, in face of the the high high court of the Jews here, it's a very, yeah, it's a very cheeky and and, and a very mocking reply. But because the people love them, um, the Sadducees and the, the high priests have no other other option than to leave them and free them. So the question is, where does Peter and John, especially Peter here, has this courage? I mean, we do learn that in the in the Gospels, Peter has a different face. I mean, here in front of the high priest, he's very, it's very direct and, and courageous. And just a couple of yeah days ago, he was not in front of the high priest. He was just in the court of the high priest. And Peter was not even, uh, he wasn't even asked and interrogated but he was just an observer and he was just asked hey have you been with jesus haven't you been one of them no more but three times peter denied and said i don't know this man what do you want from me there was this this female servant from the high high priest that asked just imagine this lady 
the servant from the high priest, has seen Peter when he denied. And now he sees him in front of the high priest. She will probably rub her eyes and think, Peter, is that you? Or is that a twin of yours who's more courageous? I mean, at the time, Peter's sta- his, his stakes were a lot lower. He might probably not have been killed. I mean, at the time, it might have been a very minor punishment. But now, death is hanging over him. The punishment could be a lot greater. What has happened? What has happened? The answer is, King Jesus has won the battle. He has won the fight, the war. Peter is at the front line, but he does know this war of one. And with this knowledge, with this faith, he's standing here like a rock. And in this faith, in this struggle, we see the, in this fight, in this struggle, we see the faith of John and Peter. The thing that you really believe, the thing you're really convinced of, the one you're really trusting, all this is revealed when you are under pressure. And this is my third point. The struggle between the kingdoms reveals your faith. So we have seen a lot of the content of the story. What did the high priest say? What did Peter and John reply? And we've seen it's not only very impressive what they said, but it's very impressive what how the apostles said it. In verse 13, they said, in boldness, and the most, for me, the most impressive is the answer to the threat to be quiet about Jesus. The, the answer is, it's not even one has to listen to God more than to mean Paul is, uh, Peter, excuse me, is re- even charging them and saying, you decide if it's right to answer, uh, to, to listen more to humans than to God. And he Peter puts the, the argument back on them. He's, he's showing them God and his standards. And he shows them, you are there. God is on the other side. And there's a big chasm. And this is from people who've never studied theology, who've never studied speaking freely in front of people. I mean, in verse 15 here, um, they were they were said to be not educated men. The actual word is idiotai. You might uh, have some connotation to this word. So where where does this faith come from? Where this faith that we can't recognize Peter. Verse eight is the answer. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus from heaven. The Holy Spirit has given Jesus the strength to to win the whole war, the battle. And the same Spirit is now equipping Peter for this struggle, for this fight. And this situation of pressure reveals, reveals the faith of Peter. The problem is our faith is not really visible. We can't see it. Our own faith we can't see, the faith of others we can't see either. Only when this faith is tested, when it's when it's challenged, then we see where our faith stands. And if you really follow Jesus, 
you will come into situations where your faith is challenged, where your faith is revealed. And for this reason, I want to give you, along this story, 10 principles that we see in this story. 10 important principles for the situation when your faith is challenged. Firstly, it can go faster than you think. So today everything is calm, and tomorrow you're on the front line. Prepare yourself for that. How can that look? For example, that you pray that God gives you strength to strengthen your faith, especially for these situations already now. Strengthen it already now. Pray that you can answer wisely when you're asked. In the first letter of Peter, in chapter 3, he says, Be always prepared to give an account of anyone who asks you. Secondly, Be conscious of the fact that often big attacks come from the people who claim to be on the same side as you. It sounds odd, but it's not different to at the time. I mean, the Sadducees are the leaders of God's people, and these people have put Peter and John in prison. And today it's churches worldwide that then ask that abortion will be legalized, for example. The third, third principle, the spirit of the age, the thing that culture celebrates and all of that, is often a, a thing that challenges your faith. At the time it was the resurrection, but today, for example, it's, it's sexuality and identity. Fourth principle, we should be obedient to the authorities of this world. But there's a border. And the most clear border of this obedience is God's commandments. You need to listen to God more than to people, to humans. Fifth principle, in your surroundings, in your in your surrounding, you will you will challenge people with your your with your faith with your but look that you be sure that you have a blameless life in front of them in a way of not giving a bad witness let's have a look at the situation why humanly speaking they they didn't get punished i mean in verse 21 we read they were so popular in the, with the people. I mean, most people at the day were not Christians, but they have seen these Christians, and they they. And this was essential for the situation with Peter and John. Humanly speaking, it it, it pulled their head out of the sling. I mean, their popularity. Sixth principle: faith. And politics, you cannot separate perfectly. It's sure that the church is not a political party, but especially today in our times, many questions of our faith are kind of have developed into political questions. For example, 
um, abortion and other topics. With Peter and John in this situation, this topic of the resurrection, one main topic of our faith was a political topic at the time. That because the struggle is always between the two kingdoms, our faith often has implications in politics as well. The seventh principle, it's a, it's a great sin in situations where we are challenged in, under pressure, when we don't stay faithful. We, le- we, read, we read of Jesus, whoever, Jesus says, whoever, whoever declares and confesses me before people, I will also declare before my father, but whoever denies me for people in front of people, I will deny before my father. Take your responsibility. It's not a light one to confess Christ. Eighth principle, in a situation under pressure to deny Jesus, is also not the unforgivable sin, unforgivable sin. We see this with Peter. He denied Christ three times, but still he could come back. So under pressure, when your faith is unmasked and revealed, and it's obvious that your faith is very small, then start walking, running into Jesus' arms. Call out to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The ninth principle, the same Holy Spirit that worked and worked in Peter is also working in you today. It's his power that empowers you. Jesus promised, he said, whenever you are handed over to the authorities, don't worry what you say, because according to the hour, it will be given to you what you will say, because not you will say this, but the spirit of your father will will be it who speaks. This is what God promised to his apostles. And here we see it visible in Peter and John. And I ask myself, I'm not an apostle. You also are non-apostles. Does that apply to us? And then I realized something. Two chapters later, we read of the next Christian who is before the high council. His name is Stephen. Stephen was not an apostle. But in chapter 6, verse 10, we read, But they, the Jews, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was not an apostle like you and I. But you and I had the same Holy Spirit as Stephen had. The tenth and last principle principle is that Jesus won the war already. We only have little fights in front of us. Don't get me wrong. These battles and fights are earnest and serious. They can cost you anything. Your money, your life, your family, your your life. In this situation, Peter uh, stayed alive. But church history has it that a few years later, he, he, he didn't stay alive. And from the command of, by the command of Nero, he was crucified upside down. I don't know what it will cost you in your life, but 
one thing is for sure. And there's one thing that was sure for King Friedrich Wilhelm IV when he built this palace and had this inscription put into the ceiling. Because in verse 12 it says, There is salvation in no other else, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, or to the glory of God. This one is in, in, in the inscription on the ceiling. But this is only one half, actually, because it continues, for by the name of Jesus, all knees will be bowed above and on and under the earth. This is one thing that one day will surely come because Jesus has won. It is not a nice day, not a good day for the people who are on the wrong side the whole of their lives. These people will have to bend their knee. They will have to bend their knee in, in face of his awesome power. And they will have to realize they stood on the wrong side. But we kids, children of the living God, we can bow our knee while we realize he has given our life because we're on the side of the victors. And we might kneel before, uh, next to Peter and John who walked before us. And it doesn't matter next to who you will kneel at the day, but you will kneel surely out of thankfulness in front of the king, the king who won the war for you, the king who empowered you through his spirit and strengthened you for all the fights in your life. And at that day, you will know that he carried you all your life. Amen.